Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James, and for today's episode, I'm joined across the Spatchbox by none other than Zach Green. This is episode 38 of the show. Thank you so much for joining us as we move through the month of April. It wouldn't have escaped your attention that it has been a very, very busy week in the world of politics and sport, and that might give you an indication of what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get to kind of the meat and potatoes of today's episode, I have to ask Zach, what has caught your attention over the past seven days? Well, it's certainly been one hell of a week, hasn't it? I mean, it's been story after story after story, even up to the last 24 minutes, let alone the 24 hours, seven days. Um, what's caught my attention actually on Monday at the start of the week when uh, Keir Starmer, typical visit to Bath ahead of the local elections, was chucked out of a pub quite theatrically. Uh, by a landlord, and that caused a bit of um, online uh, discourse. It was uh, it was quite funny. Uh, anyone who's seen it, it's just this this guy is shouting at Keir Starmer, uh, saying he'd basically failed as leader of the opposition. He'd failed as the British people. Uh, was ejected from the pub. Uh, and hours later, Keir Starmer posts on I think all his social media and his social media team just a picture of him having a pint, saying uh, at last. So it's quite, it was quite entertaining. The thing that caught my attention this week was the sentencing of Derek Chauvin. Of course, he was convicted of second degree murder, third degree murder and second degree manslaughter for the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota last year. That's a story of global significance and one that has, of course, kind of been mentioned on a, on a domestic level as well. It's been an incredibly busy week in the world of politics so much stuff has happened and it, it's quite incredible that we got to the end of the week and the, the sentencing of, of this kind of former police officer on counts so so severe has now kind of escaped from from the bottom of, of of the news cycle at this point and i think kind of in any other week this story would still be leading the front pages kind of towards towards the end of as I say, the week. So yeah, it's it's been an incredibly busy news week, um, and I think it's just important that we reflect on that, on that verdict, because of course, second degree unintentional murder is is a is a really big charge, and I don't think it's one that that many people perhaps expected, given the United States criminal justice system record in in recent years. Zach, have you got any anything to add on that? Uh, just as a footnote, really, I completely agree. In any other week, this would be top of the news cycle. Um, just says how much of a busy news week it's been. And also, as well, justice has been done that um, he has been sentenced. However, the, the longer term battle ahead is, is still not anywhere near um, completion. And also, as well, I think the, the discourse surrounding even the sentencing, I don't know if you heard Nancy Pelosi's um, rather strange speech. Again, it, 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 that, it, that in itself just resembles the problems that America still has to, to tackle. This is not a definitive end date towards all the trouble that had predated and also followed the um, murder of George Floyd. And yeah, it, 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 you are relieved. I think a lot of people didn't think it would act, he'd actually be sentenced. There was a lot of um, concern, I think, at the time, the state of Minneapolis actually declared a state of emergency, and those are the kind of mood signals thinking this could be a really unjust verdict. And luckily, it wasn't. He was convicted in all three counts. That's that's something that I 
really was in the back of your mind and in the moments before the verdict I think it came out at six o'clock in the UK kind of earlier this week I think there were lots of kind of anxiety amongst kind of people of all backgrounds looking at this and really hoping for the outcome that that seemed self-evident before the trial had started and of course is is, is the verdict that we eventually get with with Chauvin being being found guilty on all counts the nature of today's episode kind of reflects their hecticness of this week Zach and I have spoken a number of times about what we wanted to talk about and it's changed a number of times because of just how quickly everything has changed this week I mentioned towards the end of the last episode that we wanted to discuss kind of the local elections at more length as a result of the things that have happened this week we're going to kind of scrimp on the local elections a little bit we're still going to talk about it towards the end of the show but we're going to give another story kind of prominent attention to start the episode what i should say and this is kind of especially significant today is that we are recording this episode of the midfield politics podcast on friday the 23rd of april at eight minutes past six zach i'll hand over to you why why is it so significant that i pointed out the time of which we have recorded this podcast given the first story that we wanted to discuss today Friday the 23rd of April so basically um it, this was in the that's what I made the reference at the start about when you ask you about what's caught my attention even in 24 hours I said 24 minutes ago before this podcast was even air that we were getting that emerging story about Dominic Cummings who's uh thrown a I call it a nail bomb back into the tent of number 10 with a really explosive blog lots of accusations in there definitely paving the way for some really tricky, tricky moments ahead for, I think, the Prime Minister in number 10. Yeah, definitely. So to, to fill you in on what's happened, so earlier this evening, earlier this afternoon, Dominic Cummings released a blog kind of press release that is published both on his blog and gave kind of prior access to, to the likes of the BBC, in which he makes a number of huge claims about the conduct of of the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and his inner circle. So Boris Johnson's former advisor, Dominic Cummings, has denied leaking text messages sent between the PM and businessman Sir James Dyson, who himself has kind of relocated to the UK in terms of tax purposes. Several newspapers have speculated that Mr Cummings passed on the messages, which were first reported by Laura Kunzberg of the BBC earlier this week. However, in a blog released today on the aptly named DominicCummings.com, Mr Cummings wrote that he was not directly or indirectly the source of the leak and questions the competence of the Prime Minister. Downing Street has, as you would expect, launched an inquiry into who carried out the leak. The BBC, of course, as you would expect them to do so, has said that it will not discuss the sources of its story. In the exchange between Mr Johnson and Sir James, which was kind of, as, as I said, released by the BBC earlier this week, which happened in, in March last year, the Prime Minister agreed to fix concerns the business, businessman had over his employees' tax bills if they moved to the UK to make ventilators at the start of the pandemic. On this front, Mr Cummings writes in his blog, I was not directly or indirectly a the source for the BBC Kimsburg story on the PM stroke Dyson text. He goes on to add, this is Dominic Cummings, that he is more than happy to meet with the Cabinet Secretary and for him to search my phone for Dyson messages. 
Mr. Cummings continued by saying, I'm happy for number 10 to publish every email I received and sent between July 2019 and November 2020, with no exceptions other than obviously for some national security and intelligence issues. Earlier in the day, Downing Street declined to comment on speculation that Mr. Cummings had leaked the text. The Prime Minister's spokesperson said, we don't get into the detail of processes in terms of these inquiries, but the Cabinet Office is taking that work forward. So that's a whistle-stop background tour of what's happened today. Beyond what I've just mentioned there, Zach, what kind of stood out to you in, in Dominic Cummings's blog post this afternoon? Are there any bits that you find particularly interesting? The thing I found most interesting in the blog, I think it was deep down in the blog about the, the renovation project, which is actually the mail had been going with this story for a long, long time. This, this isn't a, a kind of a out, out, out of nowhere sudden story about um, who was paying for the renovations for I think the number the number 11 flat and Dominic Cummings I think some of the words were unethical probably illegal um, in terms of how Boris Johnson was going to try and get around paying for it uh, of course now it, it, it's, it's worthwhile to point out that Boris Johnson is now stumping up the money for the actual renovation but there was a lot of options that Johnson, uh, Carrie Simons and those within that circle were mooting about how to actually get the renovations paid for. One of them, I think, included making the taxpayer pay for it, which would not have been a popular option. Um, so, yeah, Cummings was saying, well, hang on a minute. I told Boris Johnson that it was unethical. I wouldn't do it. And if the um, he has I think he has to go in front of a panel of MPs in a couple of weeks or maybe even next week. And he said, I'm more than happy to talk more about it. So deep within that nail bomb, there's a, probably another bomb that ready to, to detonate from Cummings in there as well. That's what that's what stood out to me. So just to follow up on what Zach has just pointed out, I'll read out kind of bullet point three from the Cummings blog, which covers the, the Prime Minister's renovation of his flat. So Mr Cummings writes, the Prime Minister's DOC has also made accusations regarding me and leaks concerning the PM's renovation of his flat. The PM stopped speaking to me about this matter in 2020. As I told him, I thought his plans to have donors secretly pay for the renovation were unethical, foolish and possibly illegal and almost certainly broke the rules on proper disclosure of political donations if conducted in the way he intended. I refuse to help him organise these payments. My knowledge about them is therefore limited. I would be happy to tell the Cabinet Secretary or Electoral Commission what I know concerning this matter. On Zach's final point, um, Mr Cummings ends his blog by saying that he will not engage in media briefing regarding these issues, but will answer questions about any of these issues to Parliament on the 26th of May for as long as MPs want. There was an interesting tweet that Zach forwarded me before we before we started the show, um, which essentially kind of, I, I think, is a really fair reflection of, of the the psychodrama that's now going on with with Dominic Cummings. It was by Michael Savage, who tweeted, if you're going to try a dead cat strategy, you should probably check that the cat is, in fact, dead and preferably not armed. It's been a really difficult week for the prime minister for lots of different reasons. And it doesn't appear like Downing Street is dealing with this particularly well, given the fact that Dominic Cummings has now come out all guns blazing. And I think if we cast our minds back 
to the original Dominic Cummings scandal, of course, the, the Barnard Castle incident, which just feels like it was a complete lifetime ago. Um, we always discussed this. We always said, well, how is Dominic Cummings still in a job when he clearly broke lockdown rules? Although we can argue about the letter of the law, he clearly broke the spirit of them. I think that was the consensus position in government at the time. Um, with that in mind, how did he keep his job as a senior advisor to the government for so long? How did we end up in a situation where Dominic Cummings, a senior advisor, not elected, not otherwise particularly significant in the public in the public sphere, this is someone who doesn't enjoy media attention or at least purports not to. Um, how did this guy keep his job so long? How did he stay so significant? And I think the angle that a lot of people took was to say, well, he probably has dirt on the prime minister that the prime minister wouldn't want to get into the public domain. Are we maybe starting to see why Dominic Cummings lasted for so long in his job at Downing Street? Absolutely. I think we've both said this a long time ago. I think we continue to say upon Cummings' exit that he has the ability and he's beginning to show it to torch Boris Johnson's premiership. That really, we said that the weakness of Boris Johnson in that whole saga represents really the inherent power struggle that's in Downing Street anyway. And when Cummings went, we said this this problem will not subside, that there will be further revelations post-Cummings that will just show that Boris Johnson at the moment is actually quite a weak leader. This is one of them. And leading up to Cummings, let's just take our minds back to why is Cummings back in the news? Well, there's been the to and fro over the Greenshill scandal about how David Cameron, a former prime minister, was lobbying the chancellor, uh, the health secretary, the health secretary who, who's, uh, I think it's its sister, and himself have some sort of, maybe I think his sister, I have to be a bit shaky on that, about having shares in an NHS contract. So essentially all this kind of furore is about who on earth is leaking this kind of explosive material, because we say this a lot ever since Brexit's happened about you know, these are not normal times. In normal times, this could potentially finish off a prime minister and a government um of the scandal where this is complete scandal and number 10 decided to accuse dominic cummings of leaking all of this intricate information about the dyson sex the greensill scandal maybe dominic cummings has maybe he hasn't but it shows that there's this continuing as labor pointed out this critique of sleaze in government and if dominic cummings is true to his word and wants to say more this will be really problematic for the Prime Minister. And we're beginning to see now why he lasted so long in his job, because he has a lot on Boris Johnson. And perhaps the cynics as well, there could be someone in government who's not exactly pushing back the idea of Dominic Cummings continuing to speak out on it. Yeah, it's been a really, really strange, strange couple of weeks for the Prime Minister on that front. I wanted to to, to come back to, to the blog and talk about one of the th things that you mentioned caught your attention. So I'm just going to again read read from what Mr Cummings has wrote today. RE lockdown. Last year there was a meeting between the PM, Cabinet Secretary and the Director of Communications and me regarding the leak of the decision for a further lockdown on the Friday evening immediately after the meeting in the Cabinet room that made the decision in parenthesis he adds known in the media as the chatty rat story. 
this is obviously relating to, to what happened towards the end of the year. The cabinet secretary told the PM that the leak was neither me nor then the director of communications and that all evidence definitely leads to Henry Newman and others in that office. I'm just trying to get the communications data to prove it. The PM was very upset about this. He said to me afterwards, and he uses kind of single scare quotes on this. If Newman is confirmed as the leaker, then I will have to fire him. And this will cause me very serious problems with Carrie, Carrie Simmons, the Prime Minister's fiancée, as their best friends. Pause. Perhaps we could get the Cabinet Secretary to stop the inquiry. So this is a quote Mr Cummings is suggesting. I told him that this was mad and totally unethical, but he had ordered the inquiry himself and authorised the Cabinet Secretary to use more invasive methods than I usually apply to leak inquiries because of the seriousness of the leak. I told him that he could not possibly cancel an inquiry about a leak that affected millions of people just because it might implicate his girlfriend's friends. I refused to try to persuade the cabinet secretary to stop the inquiry. And instead, I encouraged the cabinet secretary to conduct the inquiry without any concern for political ramifications. I told the cabinet secretary that I would support him regardless of where the inquiry led. I warned some officials that the PM was thinking about cancelling the inquiry. They would get ever evidence to this effect under oath to any inquiry. I also have WhatsApp messages with very senior officials about this matter, which are definitive. I mean, that is explosive. The, the section of this about the flat in Downing Street is explosive. And yet the, the lead story about this issue on, on the BBC News website is just about the Dyson affair, which I think is very much, in my eyes, supplementary to the other things. I think they're slightly more toxic um, at this stage, given kind of the context of the pandemic. What do you make of this all, Zach? Because this is going to be an absolutely huge story as as this kind of podcast is released. Well, first of all, you hope it is a big story. I mean, we know what the media have been like in the past few weeks that, for example, I think the Greensill story didn't really get much traction, did it? And we all thought at the time this will just probably be in the news for a couple of days and then it will go. And perhaps that works to both the government and also the opposition, this idea of, well, it's not just the once, is it? It's the twice, it's the three times, et cetera, et cetera. And here we are, the much bigger story. And this is definitely lit a fuse. And I think that dead cat tweet sums it up that Number 10, I think, and Boris Johnson decides to accuse Dominic Cummings of this to divert attention away from a really big story about Greensill and David Cameron. And they've now been bitten on the backside by Dominic Cummings. And this could really, really be problematic for the government, because if this gets the traction, if this cuts through, what, uh, what Dominic Cummings is essentially saying is that Boris Johnson isn't just incompetent or a liar, is that he's really breaking every sort of code um, throwing caution to the wind and everyone in the Prime Minister's circle is in some way benefiting from each other. Now that is what we all say is cronyism and if this was to get attention further down the line it's this idea that you really can't trust the government, you can't trust Boris Johnson and it's stuff that I think opposition parties this is like catnip for them whether or not it's going to be damaging to the to the government in the polls is way too early to suggest just because we're close to a local election if this cuts through in time i, I don't know but it, it certainly sets the scene doesn't it for the next few months i think ahead that usually inquiries do take uh, a bit uh, a bit of a while 
Um, again, we don't really know the the cleanliness, should I say, of inquiries as well, that sometimes inquiries whitewash uh, the verdict, that they absolve everyone of blame, and it's very much a fact-finding exercise. All of these questions really do throw into this soup of uncertainty that we don't know what's going to happen, but all we know is this is definitely going to be in the news. I think it's too big of a story to ignore. And I wouldn't be surprised if in tonight's, tomorrow's front pages, you're going to see Dominic Cummings just pasted all across them and it will certainly make for as you said a psychodrama ahead in the Tory party once again oh definitely uh, absolutely of course and I think the timing of, of Cummings's announcement is really important because it was just in time of course for news packages for both the six and ten o'clock news and of course tomorrow's weekend papers and it being on a Friday also sets up nicely for for some some prominent coverage on, on Sunday as well so there's lots of strategy going on here, and I think I think that's kind of really important to note that there is definitely different angles at play. I think one of the most explosive lines in this blog is this. It is sad to see the PM and his office fall so far below the standards of competence and integrity the country deserves. This from the man who kind of was involved in the political scandal of the year last year and was absolutely remorseless about it and dominated the back pages, well, not the back pages, the front pages, for weeks and weeks and weeks. We're talking about someone who, for all intents and purposes, has an absolutely abysmal kind of record in the public side, and yet he's making these claims about the Prime Minister. And I think Dominic Cummings is many, many things, and I'm not someone by the end of Dominic Cummings' tenure or even kind of during Dominic Cummings' tenure, to be completely honest. I'm not someone who believed all the hype about him being some kind of political genius who was going to overthrow the way that we think about politics in this country. I think that was his own hype that members of the media started to believe and then regurgitate. What I will say about Dominic Cummings, though, is I think he is a shrewd political operator. I think he knows how badly kind of damaged his own personal brand is. And if you start attacking someone, and of course no less the Prime Minister, if you start attacking the Prime Minister and your brand is already damaged, that's even more damaging to the Prime Minister because this isn't really coming across as desperate. This is coming across fairly convincingly. And the fact that he's set this up so nicely with with the committee meeting or or the inquiry meeting on, on the Monday is not a good look for the Prime Minister. And the timing of this means that the Prime Minister has very minimal time to respond at this point in the news cycle. So Dominic Cummings, once again is is back on the top of the political agenda and i don't think people were necessarily expecting him to return so quickly i mean he only resigned kind of a number of months ago it's not been that long and yet dominic cummings once again an unelected bureaucrat is back leading the political headlines absolutely and if anything you have to lament i think boris johnson's incompetence and lack of intelligence in of all the people to pick on you pick on Dominic Cummings the one who is basically I have it right the architect I think behind Boris Johnson's general election victory I think that that classic get Brexit done same thing of take back control that Dominic Cummings he may be many things but he's not stupid and he's certainly not harmless and to pick on someone to essentially poke and show a red rag to this bull, uh, he's going to go through the China shop. And I think Tory MPs now will fear this 
mutually assured destruction that if Dominic Cummings is going to be blamed for this and so is Boris Johnson and it's heading for a battle that really could take off for sure. It's something we'll have to monitor over the next couple of weeks. It's certainly not going to leave the news cycle anytime soon. Another story that is definitely going to stay in the news cycle for the foreseeable future is the plot of 12 clubs in European football trying to start a Super League, the Super League, as they came to brand it. So that includes the big six from England, Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal and Tottenham, accompanied by Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, FC Barcelona, Juventus, AC Milan and Inter Milan. So for those of you not particularly interested in football, I'll give you a very, very quick rundown of what the Super League is, although I'm fairly confident that you're either A, interested in football or B, kind of well-informed enough to know what's probably going on with the Super League. It was that bigger story. The Super League was this idea where these 12 clubs could start a competition in which they would always participate, regardless of how well they did and how well they performed in their own league competitions. It would act as a replacement for the Champions League that clubs normally have to kind of qualify through. So, for instance, if clubs in the Premier League don't finish in the top four, they don't play in the Champions League, which means they miss out on lots of revenue and can't play against the best team in the world, the teams like Real Madrid and Juventus, for example. So, with that in mind... Florentino Perez, the the president of Real Madrid, teamed up with various American owners in the Premier League, Joel Glazer at Manchester United, Stan Kroenke at Arsenal and John W. Henry at Liverpool and sought to make this competition. It went down abysmally. So it was announced at the start of the week very, very quickly. Fans revolted against this. And within two days, the plot to start a European Super League or a Super League was abandoned. Chelsea Football Club were the first to announce their intention to withdraw, rather they were the first to kind of begin the withdrawal process. Manchester City then decided to withdraw, and then once those two clubs were out of the competition, the remaining bricks started to fall very, very quickly. Now, that's that's basically what happened this week. Of course, there's lots more nuance to it, which we'll get into shortly. But the reason we're talking about this on an episode of the Midfield Politics podcast, which is, of course, not a, not a show about football, it's a show about politics, is because the two intersect very, very nicely. And it's a story of such huge significance that everyone is talking about it. So Zach and I are taking it as an opportunity to do so, too. Now, Zach, there are so many political ramifications for this story, but we'll start off with what the Prime Minister said at the start of the week, that he would drop a legislative bomb to prevent this from happening, which included, among other things, you would imagine withholding support for the police on on match days. So, for instance, Arsenal would have to pay for the policing of their fixtures, whereas at the minute it's heavily kind of subsidised by the government. What do you make of this whole story and why does it matter to to kind of the things that we normally talk about politics? it's remar- it shows you the remarkable direction of travel in Tory politics, right? Let's be frank that usually a Conservative Party, let alone a Conservative government, aligning with the values of football, who I think we all inherently think is, it was built by the working class. And these the signals that Boris Johnson was sending was more of this gravitation towards his new voter base, the Red Wall, those 
up in the northeast and the York and Yorkshire and the Midlands, rather than the kind of the um, as John Major put it, playing cricket on the village green type of voters in the south. And it's that gravitation which is genuinely quite awe striking that it's it's quite evident to see. Now we can debate whether or not he means what he says or not, but that's the thing that as many things that Boris Johnson is politically quite smart in some cases, and this is one of them, that he knows this is all the right things to say because the vote those who are voting in these conservative seats, for example, Bassett Law, uh, Workington, etc, etc, are going to be the ones who want who do not want this super league at all. Of course that entire country didn't. But the point is that this idea of football being a working class sport is going to align more with those up north rather than down south. So that's the first big takeaway from it. But second is that remarkable proposal for what I think Jeremy Corbyn put in the 2019 manifesto for Labour about the 50 plus one rule, where essentially the fans would own 51% of the club. Now, that would be an absolutely unprecedented and a huge, huge government intervention in football. Uh, something we've never seen before in that in on that scale, uh, and given how much when you begin to pour the reality of a fifty plus one rule, so for example, you'd have to buy out fifty one percent of Manchester United. That's going to cost about nearly two billion. So the whole thing, let's just say for the twenty Premier League clubs alone, is going to be around six, seven, eight, nine billion pounds. Now that would be a huge amount of money. So whether or not the policy is going to happen or not is another thing. But this idea that Boris Johnson and his government are going to intervene in something where the fact that he, I think he said at the meeting that he he's definitely a pro-market capitalist. However, this isn't, it just, it's remark, it's just remarkable to see um, actually the role of the government in the past few days about what they'd actually do to stop it. The Prime Minister's comments about kind of him being a free market capitalist, they really stood out to me because it doesn't really make much sense for the Prime Minister to intervene in this thing. There were lots of left-wing commentators who made this point in saying, well, look at us, look at us now. We're kind of cheering on the idea that we've had this massive revolt against kind of <laughs> a big corporation doing something that we don't like. If only we had this energy for lots of other industries. And I think there's an emotional point to make about the football and the football clubs involved in this and the idea that they're kind of social institutions they're kind of big things in the community they're important to lots of people it's like people's entire lives i mean you only have to look at zach's timeline on on a, on a match day and it's flooded with things about chelsea i mean this this is like really important to lots and lots of people so yes they're a community asset and all of this kind of stuff and lots of people really really care about them really passionately i don't think you could question zach's passion uh, for chelsea in particular however and of course, I count myself as a huge football fan as well. I'm I'm very emotionally involved in in the sport. What I would say is that how does the government draw the line here, and why does the government feel it appropriate to talk about kind of dropping a legislative bomb and doing all of these things? The reason is very very simple, and I, I'm really sorry that I've, I, I forgot who this tweet was by, but someone tweeted a prominent journalist tweeted earlier this week. Well, this is a case in point as to why the Labour Party should not seek ideological purity. Because this intervention by the government, this intervention by Boris Johnson, whether or not it had any impact whatsoever is kind of besides the point. But it was popular and it was completely anti-conservative. It bore 
no kind of relevance to the ideology as a whole. It was massively intervening into a private kind of entity. And that says a lot about kind of the way this country is heading. It's very, very populist in the approach that the government has taken. Boris Johnson himself, in all fairness, admitted that he doesn't care for football. He's not a football fan. And I'm glad that he admitted that because it would have been really embarrassing had he kind of been caught out on the lie. And of course, it's irrelevant whether Boris Johnson likes football or not. It's, it's, it's not part of the discussion. But I think it's important to note that this is opportunism politically and not at all ideological consistent because the idea of a European Super League to cut a long story store was to make more money if you're kind of the likes of Real Madrid, if you're Liverpool, if you're Arsenal, if you're Chelsea, all these clubs. The idea was you play the best teams, the quote unquote best teams in Europe. So you make more money for international broadcasting and this kind of things. It means that in the Champions League, rather than having to play a team like Shakhtar Donetsk, you can play against kind of Manchester United versus Barcelona every couple of weeks. And of course, the TV rights for Manchester United versus Barcelona and the TV rights for Manchester United versus Shakhtar Donetsk are going to be very, very different figures. So that was the theory behind the madness. And it fell so quickly. And there was lots of political remonstrating. But the bottom line is this. If the Conservatives took an ideological, ideologically consistent position, they would have been fine with this because this is kind of free market capitalists doing what they can to innovate and make new money. And of course, that is kind of the most free market kind of approach you could possibly take. So it's not ideologically consistent. And yet it's something that proved to be incredibly popular with the electorate. There's talk kind of since the the scheme found that, that the government was going to do more things to kind of intervene and make sure these football clubs stayed where they are and they serve the communities and that the owners are not just owners of a business, they're kind of custodians of these football clubs. This is where it gets a little bit ridiculous for me because there is not a hope in hell that someone, and I'll pick Roman Abramovich as the example, there is not a hope in hell that he's going to let 51% of Chelsea Football Club go to anyone but himself because it's one of his prized assets. He makes or stands to make a lot of money from Chelsea whenever he decides to sell the club. And that's the bottom line. Of course, Abramovich is a slightly different case because Chelsea is is kind of his plaything in the sense that I think he enjoys running the club and enjoys winning things with them. But if you pick another example, if you pick kind of the Glazers at Manchester United who have floated the club on the, on the New York Stock Exchange, these people are in it solely for the money. They are in it as an investment. And there is not any prospect that they are going to willingly give up a a large percentage of of their shares so that supporters can play a more prominent role in the running of their club and i think it's really naive to expect that that would be the case and that a conservative government run by boris johnson would be able or willing to achieve those things zach are there any other kind of political ramifications that that you wanted to mention with regards to this story absolutely um you touched on that point about how it, it's difficult in practice but it's again it's that new music of this is exactly why about this ideological purity point this is why the conservatives are leading in the national polls this is why the conservatives stands to probably win their next general election is that they are inherently about winning power whereas i think the labor party has shown especially in the last decade or so that it's been about factionalism it's been about very much winning the argument rather than winning the election. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to be a massive turning point, that Boris Johnson's going to win by a landslide because he said some really bad words about some billionaires. 
far from it. It's just this idea that Boris Johnson is that Heineken Tory that we said maybe you're not, maybe the scandal, the scandal, scandal storm might uh, overtake him. I don't know. But it's this idea that Boris Johnson can package the Conservative Party however he wants to win a general election to the base of voters he needs. And it's these voters in the Midlands, in the Northwest, in the Northeast, even, even in Yorkshire that if the Conservatives can hold on there, they're going to win the next general election. There's no ifs, muts or maybes because of that. And it's that old age quote about football was like made by the working class but destroyed and stolen by the rich. Now, if the Conservatives of all parties and of all politicians can package themselves as the kind of the force against the billionaires in that sense, then <coughs> Labour will find themselves in a real big difficulty about how on earth do they outflank the Conservatives on it. But it was interesting that Labour, I think, was supporting the 50 plus one model as well. And I know that we criticise Keir Starmer a lot for just agreeing with the government. But it's this point that both the Tories and the Labour Party are united on this issue that if they were to have some sort of power, whether or not they mean it or not, I don't know, that they're ready to become more interventionist as a government. And it's this break I think from the last 30 30 years or so where the market has essentially dictated a lot about our society it started with uh, well started with Thatcher it was continued with Major I think Tony Blair was the big champion of this idea of market breeding competition it's even through financial crisis the market has still been this kind of cornerstone of our society and how our economy works perhaps this could be a turning point in the future that governments will intervene a lot more in affairs where we would say the market usually dominates. It'll be interesting to see, because I don't think this idea of a super league is going to go away. I think it will come up again in three or four years' time. It's not going to be the end date as much as people want to think that football has been saved. I think football has merely been saved from itself just for a couple more years. When this argument does come up again, it'll be very interesting to see what legislative bombs will be dropped, because I think the next time this happens the government are going to have to do rather than say. Yeah, definitely. I think the only other angle that I wanted to cover on this was was from more of the European Union perspective, because, of course, it's it's intensely relevant to, to, the, to the story because it's a Spanish and the Spanish and Italian clubs also involved in this, is what does this say about European integration? And moreover, would this would this Super League even have been possible under European law? There was a really interesting podcast, uh, the Football Daily podcast earlier this week, in which Mark Chapman interviewed kind of a person who had written a book about EU law and the idea of a Super League. And I think the long and short of it is that this kind of scheme would have been very, very, very difficult legally to pull off because it limits competition. I think the European Union could have turned around and said, well, you can't really have this market. You can't create a sports league, which, of course, in turn is a market, which has very minimal access because it's anti-competitive and therefore is, is is against the rules of the European single market. There's that angle to consider as well. And I do think that uh, these, these owners that were involved in this scheme have used up a hell of a lot of political capital within the game. And it's going to be so, so interesting to see how they move on. And there are lots of well, the two clubs in particular who are least reticent about the scheme. Barcelona, who released a statement yesterday saying that they're kind of still believe that it would be in the best interest for their club for this to happen. And Real Madrid, who, of course, have been talking about this for a very, very long time. Andrea Agnelli, who is the the president at Juventus, is also 
saying that this is kind of still a beautiful plan, but not one that is going to be able to be pulled off any time soon. It has been an absolutely sensational week in football. I think I feel like I've aged in a lifetime. There, there were moments where kind of clubs could have been thrown out of the Premier League. Clubs could have been thrown out of the Champions League immediately. Not the Premier League immediately, but the Champions League immediately. It's been a, an absolutely incredible story. It's not one that's going to go away. And the politics of it is just simply fascinating. And I think, again, it's shown how populism in British politics is very much alive and kicking kind of years on after the Brexit vote, because this is something that the electorate cares about, as, as we've seen very, very evidently. I mean, as we record this podcast, there is a, a pretty significant group of Arsenal fans outside the Emirates kind of campaigning against the Super League, of which they have already left. So it, it's so up in the air. Um, anything could happen with this but I think it it is so interesting that this story became so politically active so so quickly Um, Zach before we move on to the local elections do you have any final thoughts on this topic Uh, just to reiterate I think think you'll echo this and that we're glad that the Super League's not happening it's a grotesque idea it it would be completely awful for football and thank goodness that clubs saw sense and pulled out of it when they could and before we move on, Zach, I believe you're writing an article for this. Where might people find it once once it's been published? Um, so, so I'll be tweeting it hopefully tonight, if not tomorrow. It's on WordPress. There'll be a link to it, and I'll uh, I'll plug it every now and then. It just on the my thoughts on rather extraordinary week in football. Awesome. So, yeah, if you're interested in that, make sure you keep an eye on Zach's Twitter account at Zachiavelli underscore V2. Um, Zach's articles on football are always pretty, pretty incredible on account of, of the length of some of the words used. It's, it's quite something and it's, it's definitely something you enjoy reading. Um, the final topic that we wanted to talk about today, um, I should add, that I, I believe Zach's story is more on the football side of things than, than the political side of things, but still something, something worth mentioning. Um, the final topic of today, as we enter kind of the final 20, 15 minutes of the show, the local elections. So yesterday, of course, remember, we're recording this on Friday. Yesterday was the London mayoral debate, or one of them, at least, on ITV. It featured candidates from the Conservative Party, Labour Party, Green Party and Liberal Democrats. First, I, I just wanted to throw this over to you, Zach. What, what did you make of, of the debate kind of? as a whole uh, i have to admit i i've not caught up on the debate yet but um the story about the london election in general is just turning into um i won't say a farce but let's just say that i think i can't wait for the end of the london mayoral elections okay in, in, instead of talking about the debate to begin with I'll, I'll i'll go back to the debate in a moment why in your opinion, is is the London mayoral election turning into a bit of a quote-unquote farce? So we had polling out early, uh, earlier this week. So I think a YouTuber is running and he's at 5%. Uh, big storm about that. I think he was out polling Peter Gavin's uh, the UK candidate at 1%. Count Binface is on 1%, apparently. Lawrence Fox is on 1%. The length and breadth of the candidates, OK, we welcome the fact that loads of people are participating in democracy. That's always a good thing uh, inherently. But as well, it's kind of you're diluting the debate, aren't you? That more coverage is now beginning to gravitate towards the candidates who, because of the voting system that we have, absolutely no chance of, of winning it. 
puts as well, you're just seeing way too many candidates, way too much news about these candidates. I think Guido Fawkes broke this earth-shattering story that one of the candidates, Brian Rose, decided to drink his own pee. Now, that's not going to change my opinion. I'm not going to vote for the for the bloke anyway. It's certainly not going to endear me towards them either. Um, but it, these kind of things, you're just thinking, oh my god, this this a this campaign's lasting forever, and b like, does this qualify for news? I mean, I want to hear about their plans for London. Why why is the current mayor not fit for office? What do they offer? What does London need to do to progress out of COVID? These kind of questions, rather than you know, what does your wee taste like? It's just getting a bit ridiculous, in my opinion, anyway. I've got to say, I had to mute myself there because that was funny. I didn't I didn't hear about Brian Rose um, enjoying a, a drink of, of his own urine. That, that's quite something. Um, yeah, I, I get what you mean. Um, I do. I, it's it's difficult, isn't it? I like the fact that that some of the I must say when, when you said Zach, um, yeah, this YouTuber is running. You sounded very kind of old man yells at cloud, um, which which made me smile. But the, the thing that I did want to say on this is that um, lots of people are running. I'll, I should probably post a link to kind of all the candidates in the description to this episode. So I'll, I'll try and remember to do that. There, there are lots of them. The reason why this is so interesting is because there are lots of people kind of running running for the sake of trying to be other candidates. So Max Fosh, for example, who is who is also a, a YouTuber, um, is running so he can try to beat Lawrence Fox um, and Emiliano, Nico Emiliano, who you mentioned earlier, polling at 5%, apparently, um, running for similar reasons, trying to just get the vote out, essentially. I think it's really, really... I'm, I, I take a different stance on this to Zach. I actually quite, I quite like it. And the reason why I quite like it in this instance is because it's not a first-past-the-post election. I think if, if this was happening in, under first-past-the-post... It would it would be irritating because those votes would essentially be wasted, but under a under a system where votes are transferred, I, I think it's okay. Um, there have been more polling since the one that Zach referred to, one by opinion yesterday, or or rather to the twentieth of uh, no, yeah, yesterday uh, that it was released. Um, has Sidi Khan on fifty one percent, Sean Bailey on twenty nine percent, Sean Berry on eight percent. Louisa Porritt on eight percent, and Gammons of the UKIP, the UKIP party, UKIP, on one percent. I think the trend of direction, kind of the travel of direction, is obviously towards a Sadiq Khan victory. The question is, at this point, on whether or not he wins in the first round. One of the other topics, briefly, that I just wanted to touch on is it's looking increasingly likely that Andy Street, the Conservative running for West Midlands mayor is going to win re-election. So there was polling that was released kind of earlier this week, a couple of days ago, I think it was conducted. Andy Street, 46%. Liam Byrne for the Labour Party, 37%. Jenny Wilkinson with the Liberal Democrats on 6%. Steve Cordwell with the Green Party on 5%. And Pete Durnell of Reform UK on 4%. So it's not going too well for the former Brexit Party in the West Midlands. However, the reason I mention this very, very quickly is that today I actually received through the post a, an information booklet about all of the candidates and what the West Wind, and what the West Midlands mayor does, kind of what the job entails. And I thought that was really good because 
a lot of the time in these elections, you don't really know what each of the candidates stand for. Lots of people don't spend much time nor effort in looking into these things. So I think it's good that the West Midlands kind of local authorities made it easier to access this information. We're very much in, in the weeds here, but Andy Street's section of the pamphlet that I received was was green rather than blue. And I thought that was interesting because he he very much tries to take the focus away from the fact he's a conservative. I think being a conservative is fine in the West Midlands. It's not that damaging. But I think being kind of a distant conservative rather than kind of pinning your hopes on Boris Johnson is the way that he's gone. And at the moment, it's proven to be very effective. The other thing to note with Andy Street and the reason why I think he's going to win quite comfortably this time out kind of to win re-election is because he recently was part of the deal that saw Coventry City Football Club come back to the city of Coventry. They had been playing in Birmingham for the past couple of seasons. Um, and that's something that's gone down really, really well in in Coventry. So, yeah, I think that's that's definitely something to keep an eye on. There is so much, so, so much going on at a local level. I think the mayoral election in London is fascinating. I think some of the stuff going up on in Scotland, of course, their election isn't on the 6th of May, but, but those elections are going to be fascinating as well. So, so much to discuss that. Any any response to, to well, take it where you like. What, what are you thinking of the local elections at the moment? Uh, again, there's just not your typical, usually your local elections are kind of, they're, they're our version of midterms about we're passing judgment essentially on the government. It's a chance to, if you're dissatisfied with the government, give them a massive kicking by depriving them of council seats. Similar vein is going to happen in terms of the government believe that they're going to take a bit of a kicking just because they're an 11 year old government. Okay, they're fresh off a thought election victory. Uh, you've got obviously Labour who are really worried about Keir Starmer's first big test because. We've already alluded to it, the Hartlepool by-election is going to be absolutely huge for Labour. I think it will have huge consequences, whatever happens. The direction I think the Labour Party and Labour leadership is going in. You look at the Welsh Senate elections, there was a poll out that shows that Labour's fortunes have somewhat improved. I think they only lose one seat on current polling. Um, it's significant, as we're saying about Boris Johnson getting a bit of a vaccine bounce in England, uh, Mark Drakeford, the First Minister, the Labour First Minister in Wales, is receiving a similar vaccine bounce in that vein as well. Um, again, like the last general election, you saw the Conservatives make inroads on Wales. If Labour can hold off in Wales, it will show that the, the recovery is at least beginning for them in wake of 2019. So I think people do dismiss the value of a local election. It's always interesting to see how the public pass verdicts on their government, what what the kind of what the direction of travel we're going in are we going towards back to labor or are we going towards even more to the conservatives um there's fascinating contests all across the four nations uh scotland i mean we've not even spoken that much about scotland they've, they've had a couple of debates um we've even got a new party in scotland i think a couple new parties now we've got george galloway's one which i can't really remember but also alex salmon's alaba party even um coming into the frame so there's plenty of stuff to digest it's going to be fascinating to really tuck into it over the next couple of weeks and even on the aftermath of it to see what is the electoral map is it any different to 18 months ago at the general election it's going to be fascinating i i think the race in scotland is going to be huge i think the ramifications are very clear in terms of who wins control or not who wins control but how 
how large a majority the SNP can get if they can in fact get a majority. I think Elba's contribution in this is fascinating. I can't believe it's been so long since we've done a podcast. So much has happened. At first, it was going to be focused solely on kind of the launch of the Alba party. Um, and they've completely fallen by the wayside since. So that that's a European Super League-esque fall from grace for Alex Salmond. Um, yeah, it's so, so busy. On a personal level, the one thing that I wanted to mention with regards to local elections is that postal voting you, you would have had to have registered by now anyway. Um, I just wanted the feedback on on my kind of experience with the system. It was really easy. Um, literally send in your request, they send it back if something's wrong with it, which it was in my case because the people at Havering Council made some some slight administrative errors. They fixed it relatively quickly and now, now my postal ballot should be sent to the right place. So yeah, it, it was good to be to be registered to vote and I look forward to to cast in my ballot in advance of kind of election day on the 6th of May. Drawing back to what we were talking about at the start of the episode, Zach, do you think the ongoing kind of accusations of Tory Slees and the Dominic Cummings saga, do you think that's going to have a significant impact on how people vote next month? I think we're, we're far too close to the, to the local elections for it to register, but I wouldn't be surprised if perhaps the quite ironically the polling probably a week or two after the local elections begin to show some sort of shift that usually when an event cuts through even cuts through instantly in the polling or for example i think the tories at the moment are averaging around 44 to 43 percent so immediately you might see them go down to 40 at the very worst case but in a couple of weeks time the more that the sleaze allegations begin to stretch out. Um, this was the complete end of the, the Conservative government back in the 90s, that once you stretch out the string of sleaze allegations, how damaging they are, you might see them fall even further. So I think instantly, I, I don't expect the polling to be that much different. I don't think it will impact the mayoral election in London. I don't think it will impact the West Midlands or the councils. But I do think in the next couple of months, we might begin to see a bit of a shift back to Labour who have really fallen by the wayside in Poland. The thing that I wanted to mention at the top of this section, um, I, I assumed Zach had, had watched the debate, which he hadn't, so it's not something we could talk about. Well, I wanted to fill you in on my thoughts on the London mayoral election debate. It was rubbish. It was so fast paced and they tried to fit in so many different sections into this kind of 30 minute debate on ITV that no one could really get any points across. And it was so surface level and it was so there wasn't even much debating. It was just like Sadiq Khan, say something really quick, move on to Sean Bailey, move on to everyone else. It was it was a really weird situation for a debate. And it, it was it was actually quite disappointing. I was hoping for hoping for better as I woke up and watched it on 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 record this this morning. The other thing that I wanted to mention about the mayoral debate is that towards the end, Sadiq Khan was was trying to run through his justification for building a, a new tunnel at Silvertown, um, Silverton, and uh, he got halfway through his explanation and then the host of the show cut him off so they could move on to the final question of the show, which was, well, with your newfound freedom out of lockdown, what is your first night out going to be? Kind of words to that effect. And I, I just have to ask, what is it with the British media's obsession with ending debates with bluff questions? I know they do it in the United States, and I know that's a fairly new thing over there as well. But why, oh, why would you cut someone off who's making like a big point and something that they've had a lot of criticism for throughout the course of the debate 
most notably from from Sean Berry of the Green Party, to ask such such a ridiculous and unimportant question. That that's just my thoughts on on the debate as a whole. I think this probably just about wraps up today's episode of the podcast, Zach. Um, we should probably end this by making some predictions on on the outcome of the mayoral election, the local elections, all this kind of stuff. Because by the time we next speak, it could very possibly, maybe even probably, be after votes are, are cast and counted at the start of May in a couple of weeks' time. So, Zach, question to you: Is Sadiq Khan going to win in the first round? I think he will. I think it'd be very narrow, though. I think it could be a fifty point one. Percent kind. Of, I I don't see him being taken the distance. I think he'll win. Yeah. For me, I I, I honestly think Khan could. I I think he could if if turnout is good. Um, the only reason why Khan might not make it into the rather might not win in the first round is if people back the slightly bizarre candidates that have no chance of winning and then transferring the vote in the second round to Sadiq Khan. I think either way, he's on for his biggest victory to date, I think. I think there's a huge gulf in in the quality of the candidates that have been put forward between kind of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. I don't think the Liberal Democrats stand a chance and that, that kind of is borne out in the polling. The same with the Green Party, they're not really in the races either. Um, the other question that I wanted to put to you on, on the London mayoral elections, Zach, is who will get more votes, Brian Rose or Lawrence Fox? I might go completely rogue and say Count Bimface. Um, I think it'll be Lawrence Fox. But again, it, it's just a strange thing. I think he and the Reform Party have now got a coalition. of. It's getting ridiculous. Um, I don't see what point Lawrence Fox is now making, considering we're now leaving restrictions. But if it's not Brian Rose and Lawrence Fox, I think Count Bimface might finish above the pair of them, which would be quite exquisite. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. Um, and I've got to say, Count Binface's manifesto is 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 interesting. That there's some stuff in there about croissants, renaming bridges, kind of after England International Wayne. Um, yeah, there's some really funny points in that manifesto. So yeah, that's definitely something worth checking out. However, that probably wraps up the end of the show. Before I before I do the kind of end of show spiel, Zach, any final thoughts for this episode? Uh, I'll do my things to look out for. Um, if, uh, according to some reports, that Dominic Cummings is to appear for MPs next week, that's certainly something to look out for. Um, again, we said this at the top of the show. We said it across the show. This is something that is essentially lighting a fuse. Uh, definitely keep. We'll keep on it. Uh, it's definitely something to look out for. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's probably the main story that you should be looking out for. Uh, beyond that, uh, what else would you look out for at this point? I think the local elections are going to be huge. Um, and I think the race in Hartlepool in the, in the by-election that we haven't covered at all, and I, that's completely slipped my mind into that, that's going to be fascinating. And I think that's a huge litmus test of kind of the leader of the opposition's tenure as kind of his position in, in the Labour Party, Sakia Starmer. That's huge. That is so, so significant to the future of both the party, him as an individual candidate, and moreover, the opposition that we get to see in this country. That That's a really, really big deal, that by-election, and that's something that we should definitely keep an eye out for. Interestingly, both Boris Johnson and Sakia Starmer were both in Hartlepool today. Um, 
it's going to make a fascinating race. And yeah, that's that's probably something that we'll talk about in the next episode of the Midfield Politics podcast. However, this does bring today's episode to a close. We've just about reached the hour mark, so we're going to call time here. As always, my name has been Luke James. You can find me on Twitter at LukeJames underscore 32. I've been joined across the dispatch box by Zach Green. You can find him on Twitter at Zachiavelli underscore V2. And it's not often that I get to say the end, end of show phrase and it actually be relevant, uh, kind of literally rather than just figuratively. Please make sure you stay safe and make sure you keep voting at the local elections in the next couple of weeks. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you again very, very soon. Uh, yeah, thanks. Stay safe. Keep voting. <laughs>